Uh, if you're following along in the Bible, I'm going to be in Genesis 18 today. Uh, we're walking through the story of God in Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible. And uh, it's, um, I think, a story about the way that God pursues humanity and is relentless in his pursuit of humanity. And to give you some background to uh, what's going to happen today, there's a guy named Abraham. And Abraham, next to Jesus, is the most important person religiously in human history, and maybe even not religiously. I think he's the most important person next to Jesus in human history. And Abraham has a relationship with Yahweh God. And to have a relationship with God in this culture, a lot of people had relationships with their gods. But Yahweh God, who had a relationship with Abraham, uh, called himself the judge and creator and maker and sustainer of the whole world. Whereas many families and many people had their own gods that were localized or they were specific for their family and they worshipped uh, statues to that god and those kinds of things. Uh, Abraham had a relationship in this culture of uh, a polytheistic culture with a God who said he was the only God and that all these other gods were false gods. And Abraham is moving around in the ancient Near East and he has a relative named Lot. And the two of them become so rich uh, that they need to part ways and take their, uh, like their uh, agricultural practice, their flocks and uh, those herds and, and move to different areas. And Lot actually moves to a city uh, called Sodom and its sister city, Gomorrah, who you probably, if you grew up in Sunday school, you hear stories about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was uh, like Las Vegas on steroids. It's a very, very uh, uh, pagan and, and aggressively sinful place. And there's these towns, and the king comes down and sacks the town and takes Lot, and then Abraham chases those kings down and kills them and saves the city of Sodom and, and the people of Sodom, and they go back to their city. Uh, but their lives don't change. They go back to the sinful practices that they have. Now, the thing about Abraham that's special is God has told him he's going to be the father of a great nation. And he's going to be, have uh, so many descendants, you wouldn't be able to count them. In the same way you can't count the sand at the uh, shore of the ocean, or you can't count the stars in the sky. Uh, Abraham's descendants will be like this. But Abraham is very, very old, and his wife, Sarah, is very, very old and uh, past childbirthing age. And, and so this promise seems fleeting, uh, but it's a promise to them. And now in, in Genesis 18, there's two stories, and I want to talk about them both. And, uh, and what the first story is called a theophany. And if you want to sound smart, you can use that word, theophany. It's a, like a, an appearance of God to people. And uh, in, in the ancient Near East, uh, this wouldn't have been surprising to, as surprising to them as it would be to us today. Uh, but they would have accepted that the gods want to speak to them and interact with them. And so uh, it's going to say God appeared to Abraham. Um, and I'm going to kind of read the story. It's not going to be on the screen because uh, it's two stories that I want to tell. So I, if you want to read along, you need to. You can open Genesis 18 in your app. I'm going to be reading from a paraphrase called The Message because it's much more uh, colloquial. And so... Uh, it's going to say God appeared to Abraham, but then you're going to see these three guys actually talking to Abraham. Well, that's God appearing as these three guys talking to Abraham. And the line between who's God and who's an angel is very blurry for Abraham. For us, we want to know because we're good at science and we're good at knowing things. 
Abraham uh, was much more chill than we are today. So um, he would not even get involved with some of the theological arguments that we have because he is, has a relationship with God and he thinks that that's really the point. But he was a terrible Calvinist. So there you go. God appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent. And it was the hottest part of the day. And he looked up and he saw three men standing. And he ran from his tent, Abraham did, to greet them. And he bowed before them. And he said, Master, if it please you, stop for a while with your servant. I'll get some water so you can wash your feet. Rest under this tree, the giant oaks of Mamre. And I'll get some food to refresh you on your way since your travels have brought you across my path. And they said, certainly, go ahead. So Abraham hurried back to his tent to Sarah, his wife. And he said, hurry, uh, get three cups of our best flour and knead it and make bread. And, and then Abraham ran to the cattle pen and picked out a nice plump calf and gave it to the servant uh, who lost no time in getting it ready. And then he got curds and milk and brought them with the calf that had been roasted. And he set the meal before the men. So you can imagine this takes time and it's much later in the day, no longer the hottest part of the day, more like the time of the day when you would eat dinner. He set the meal before the men and stood there under the tree while they ate. And the men said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And we don't know if they just know Sarah's name or if they had seen her as she's walking in and out. In their culture, it probably would have been that the wife would stay in the tent and not go out and eat uh, with men, be just, just their cultural practices. And Abraham says to the three men, when they ask, where's Sarah, your wife? He says, she is in the tent. And one of the men says this, I'm coming back about this time next year. And when I arrive, your wife, Sarah, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent opening just behind the man. Now talk about exciting, right? Like you've had this promise from God for a long, long time. And then these men come along and give you this promise and Abraham somehow recognizes them as a theophany, as men who are messengers or are representative of God. And they tell you, when I come back through here next year, the promise will be realized. Talk about exciting. You have this dream or this hope that God has put into your heart and put into your mind and you've been living into this and trusting and having faith and the message you receive is, it's going to happen now. Because when you're 90, years go by really fast. And Abraham is up there in age. And when they say, when I come back through here next year, you will have a son. It's the coolest thing, the greatest thing, the, the realization of Abraham's dreams and Sarah's dreams. But Sarah was listening at the tent opening just behind the man, and Abraham and Sarah were very old at this time. Very old. Sarah was far past the age for having babies, and Sarah laughed within herself. An old woman like me get pregnant. And then it gets personal. With this old man as a husband. That'd be Father's Day, jerk. But God says... To Abraham, through these th three men, or God is these three men, God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, me, have a baby, an old woman like me? And God says this, is anything too hard for God? 
I'll be back about this time next year and Sarah will have a baby. And Sarah was scared. And so she lied. And she said, I didn't laugh because she was afraid. But he said, yes, you did. You laughed. Sarah's not only gutsy enough to be like, I can't have a baby. I'm too old with this old man husband I got. She's gutsy enough to, when she's scared, to just lie to God. I did not laugh, God. (laughs) I can't imagine, well, I can't imagine yet, but I imagine I will have similar conversations when I get to heaven and God's reading the book of my life. It says, James, you thought this was appropriate. Oh, no, God, I did not. I wouldn't, no. And God looks at me and says, yes, you did, right? (laughs) So I'm not going to throw Sarah under the bus here because I'm hoping to be on her team in heaven. But there is this moment where Abraham is living this, this dream come true. And Sarah next to him has the guts to laugh at the dream and say, like, my old man husband still has these dreams. And the best thing you can do with dreams is give up on them. So it hurts less when it isn't realized. And when I'm at this age, it's good to give up on the dream of having children. And God's question to that is interesting because it says, is anything too difficult for God? So the question isn't, how much do you believe? The question is, what is God able to do? It's a funny thing because when things go bad in your life or when things go bad in my life, I often think, what if I had prayed more? What if I had had more faith? What if I had this? What if I had that? I, I don't think, oh, that God is able or unable, except when I consider my own actions as affecting the outcomes of things which God controls, then I start to think that God is not strong enough to do anything because God somehow is depending on my faith or my prayers in order to be able to act. This is why for me, Psalm 115 verse 3 is one of my favorite verses. It says, uh, all of Psalm 115, 116 is, is great, but Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. It's kind of a, a moment... and. If you don't like God, that can be kind of an offensive verse because God's going to do whatever he pleases like a brat. But if you understand the rest of the scripture and the way that God always acts towards the benefit of the people that he loves, and then you read that God loves all people, that God always acts in favor of the other, then I love serving a God who does whatever he pleases. And is anything too difficult for God? Now, we're in church right now, so of course the answer is no. Nothing is too difficult for God. But there's things in your life, and there's things in my life, that are really difficult for God. Maybe because we're around a bunch of Christians, we wouldn't say too difficult for God, right? Like, we're going to be good Christians here and say, nothing is too difficult for God, right? Like, we're going to sing songs about it and smile about it. And then we're going to go to our car and on the way home, in the back of our mind, we'll be reminded of this thing that we're hoping for or praying for or dreaming of and it just seems that it will never happen. 
Like, like maybe you're getting up there in years and you're past the age where that could happen. And some of those things are silly, right? But some of them are dumb. Like, I, I want to run fast. No. That, that's not even God's dream, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, there's, there's things that you want to do or you dream of doing uh, that are just self-centered things, not things that would actually move forward the glory of God. But Abraham's living in a promise from God that says, you will be a father of many people. And in order to do that, you need to start with one or two. And then they have kids, and they have kids, and you become the father of this whole nation. And so Abraham's living in this promise that God gave him. And then we can look at the Scripture and see promises that people have. And specifically, there are promises for all people. Christian, not Christian, believe in God, not believe in God. There are promises for all people. Promises like, at the end of everything, God will judge the living and the dead. Some people will turn to the right and some people will turn to the left. And God has these promises for all people. Then there's promises that are for all the people who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, who would, Jesus is their Lord and their Savior. A lot of times we use the word born again. We use that word because Jesus used that word. Uh, not because it's a political group, but because Jesus used that word. And we change from being uh, humanistic, carnal people to being people who follow the ways and the teachings of Jesus. And there are promises for those people that are promises for us. And there's other promises in the Scripture, like promises that Sarah will have a son. And if you're here and your name is Sarah... That doesn't mean you. It means Abraham's wife, Sarah. So you don't get to claim that and say, I'm going to have a son. Nope. Uh, there's other promises that are like for people groups that aren't for you. There's promises that are conditional. Like if my people will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear their prayers and heal their land. If you want God to hear your prayers and heal your, hear your prayers and heal your land, you need to humble yourself and you need to pray. Because that's a conditional promise. If this than this. And there are promises that are for individuals, and then there are promises for many, many people. The promises for many, many people, like you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, meaning you have direct access to God. You are citizens of heaven and not of earth. That in my Father's house, there are many other houses within that house. And Jesus has gone there to prepare a place for you, that there is an actual place prepared for you as a follower of Jesus in the afterlife and what we call heaven that's a promise when you get there it's not like oh we need to find a place for him or oh we're not quite ready cleaning it up you're not going to the holiday inn you're going to heaven and there's a place with your name on the door so there's these promises that we live in and Abraham hears this story and reacts in a faithful manner and Sarah hears this story and is incredulous and laughs. When you think that God makes this promise and then God says, this promise will be realized, all of us want to hope or say that we would react in faith and say, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. God promised me this. God promised me this in his scripture or in a theophany when three men were sitting with me, or in personal conversation with God, and it's consistent with Scripture. God promised me this. It's going to be realized. All of us want to say we're going to react in the right way. But there's many times 
when we read the promises of God in Scripture and we read them correctly and we interpret them and handle them correctly and it's promises for us and for our life that we say, oh, that must, that is, I kind of giggle at thinking that that would actually be realized in my life. We want to be Abraham in this story, but it's a lot easier to be Sarah in this story. Because if they don't have a child in the next year, Sarah doesn't look stupid. If they do have a child in the next year, Sarah has a child. And you don't mind looking stupid if you have children, if that's the promise of God. You don't mind looking silly if God is doing great things in your life. And so a lot of times we'll hedge our bets like that, but Sarah's boldness in laughing at the promise of God being realized, and then kind of lying to God's faith, to God's face, sorry. Uh, it's an interesting turn in the story. Especially in their culture where the man would be out there talking to the guests and the woman would be just inside the tent and she would hear them say, your wife laughed, and then she would call out, no, I certainly didn't laugh. And then you would hear them say, yes, you did. And then the story just ends. Which I kind of love too because... I like to imagine Sarah going, no, I didn't. You know, like a little quieter this time though, you know. And God saying, I heard that as well, and yes, you did. And then Sarah taking a few steps back, right? And I'm not going to say anything this time. I'm just going to shake my head. I like to imagine that other people are obstinate in their relationship with God because it makes me feel a little more secure, but... They have this interaction, and then the story ends. But it shifts. When the men got up to leave, which is interesting because it's later in the day, and they set off for Sodom, Abraham walked with them to say goodbye. And then God said, Shall I keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham is going to become a large and strong nation, and all the nations of the world are going to find themselves blessed through him. That's the promise of Genesis 12. And yet I've settled on him, or sorry, yes, I've settled on him as the one who will train his children and his future family to observe uh, God's way of life, his kind and generous way of life so that God can complete in Abraham what was promised to him. And God continues and said this, the cries of the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah are deafening. The sin of these cities is immense. I'm going down, I meaning downhill, to see for myself, to see if what they're doing is as bad as it sounds. And then I'll know. As an interesting side note, this doesn't mean God didn't know. <laughs> because we believe, because the Bible teaches, that God is all-knowing and all-present, it wasn't that God needed to go down there to find out something. But in order that Abraham would understand what would go, was going on, because for Abraham, Abraham had this God and it was localized. Then Abraham went to Egypt and was surprised that his God went with him because gods didn't normally travel. And then he leaves Egypt and comes back here. And God in this story is saying, I'm leaving you and going over there. For Abraham, for Abraham this is a religious like eye wide opening. This, my God moves around and my God isn't dependent on me like and my God isn't stuck in one area and my God goes wherever he wants whenever he wants 
For Abraham, these are big, big revelations. For us, we're like, oh yeah, God's moving around, who cares? For Abraham, this is, God's going to go over there, but, but I'm over here. That's so amazing. So the cries of the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah are deafening to God's ears, and God's telling Abraham, I'm going down there to see what's going on. And the men set out for Sodom, but Abraham stood in God's path, blocking his way. And Abraham confronts him, and he says, if he's speaking to God, it's kind of a prayer, and Abraham's opening line is, are you serious? I would bet that when you pray that way, you apologize afterwards. And I would bet that if I asked you if you pray that way, you would say no. But I would encourage you to pray that way. Abraham confronts him and says, are you serious? Are you planning on getting rid of the good people right along with the bad? What if there's 50 decent people left in the city? Will you lump the good with the bad and get rid of the lot? Wouldn't you spare the city for the sake of those 50 innocents? I cannot believe you would do that. Kill off the good and the bad alike. If there's no difference between them, doesn't the judge of all the earth judge with justice? And God said, if I find 50 decent people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the place just for them. And Abraham comes back, do I, a mere mortal, made from a handful of dirt, dare open my mouth again to the master? What if the 50 fall short by five? Would you destroy the city because of those missing five? And God says, uh, I, I like how my God has like a eh, reaction all the time. Uh, I won't destroy it if there's 45. And Abraham spoke up again. What if you only find 40? And God says, neither will I destroy it, destroy it for 40. And Abraham says, God, don't be irritated by me. But what if there's only 30? And God says, no, okay, I won't do it if I find 30. And Abraham pushed on. And he says, I know I'm trying your patience, master, but how about for 20? And God says, cry out loud. Like, All right, I won't destroy it for 20. And Abraham wouldn't quit. And he says, don't get angry, master. This is the last time. What if you only come up with 10? Now, if you're Abraham, by this point, you're naming people, right? Because you know Lot and his wife, and he has a couple of daughters, and they have husbands, and their husbands can't be that bad. Otherwise, Lot would run them out. That's two, four, six. I'm sure I could find a couple others. Like, I can't find 50. Lord knows you can't find 50 decent people in Vegas. But if you... If... I mean, in the... Yeah. God says, for the sake of 10... I won't destroy the city. And when God finished talking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham went home. Abraham has a relationship with God. God comes and visits his house, tells him, a year from now you will have a son. When I come back through here, you will have a son here. And then he gets up to leave, and he says, I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cries of the victims there are deafening to my ears. And so I'm going to take those two cities off the map. And, God, and Abraham stands in the way of God, and his opening line is, 
are you serious? <laughs> In most of our minds, because of the way that you were taught, God's reaction to someone saying to him, are you serious, is similar to what God is going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. When you say to God, what is the matter with you? You expect a harsh and violent response from God. This is good old, angry, Old Testament God. It's not like you're praying to nice Jesus. This is God who is creator of the world and the judge. And not only does Abraham say, are you serious? And say, I don't even believe that a God like that would do that. He ends with this, would it be fair for the judge of the world to not judge fairly? And Abraham's backed up being like, oh, I just outlogged God. <sighs> you said you would be nice. This isn't nice. Like if you wonder if God is patient, <laughs> I think maybe this is why this story is here. Because God isn't wondering if things are bad in Sodom and Gomorrah. He isn't wondering if there's 50 good people. He isn't wondering if there's 10 good people. He knows those people are there. He knows which people are who and whether they follow God or act in righteousness or have faith and have put their trust in God. He knows. He isn't wondering these things. He's having this conversation for Abraham's sake, not for God's sake. And so for Abraham's sake, he allows Abraham to speak to him in a condescending way. For Abraham's sake, God allows Abraham to be rude to God. A lot of times, I have conversations with people that are more scared of God than me. And I'm scared of God in the respect sense. But the scripture teaches me, because I put my full faith and trust in Jesus, and because I live in the ways and the teachings of Jesus, that my eternal destination is heaven. I'm going to heaven when I die. That's what's going to happen. And so the way that I interact with God, I don't sin. And some people might think it's a sin to be honest with God. But I will often have conversations with God that I would be, other people might not have with God. I drive by other church buildings and tell God we'd use that better. He should shut down that church. <laughs> that's kind of offensive. But I think that's true. And there's churches in this town that suck. They're not evangelistic. They don't love God. They don't love people. We would use that building to do both. Are you serious, God? Why are you wasting our time and your time? Let's save all the people in Albany. That's offensive. That's probably really offensive. That probably should be taken out of the recording, but we're not going to. I have conversations like that with God where tragic things happened in the world and I'm like, God, what the heck is the matter? Like where... And I don't curse very much, so I do say what the heck. But uh, where are you, and what's wrong with you, and why aren't you doing something about this? 
The Scripture teaches that God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Why on earth don't you please to do this? And I'll have conversations with God where I'm praying for something to happen. And it doesn't. And I am displeased with the service that God has given me in his life. Like, I'm on Yelp, one star. (laughs) And if that's how you're going to act, God, that's how I'm going to act. And what's fun about that situation isn't that your pastor is immature. (laughs) It's that God is willing to be in my life the way that he knows is best for me in order to move me into Christ-likeness. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to the garden and he prayed to God and he said, God, if there's any other way for this to happen, I'm totally down with that. Jesus is looking at his arrest, his violent beating, his death on a cross. All very, like his real death, his like actual suffering. And Jesus says to God, Hey, last chance, God. Maybe there's a new plan. Maybe I can just be the boss of the world like I am, God. Maybe that church down the street, God, that's no good, maybe I can set up there. And since I'm Jesus, I'd probably be an all right pastor. And God says, this is where we're going. On the cross, you know what Jesus' last words? (laughs) He says, God, why have you forsaken me? Like God throws Jesus out there, and Jesus turns around to God and says, are you serious? Like Jesus wasn't carrying the cross down the street going, sure glad I'm saving the world today. He was turning to God in his heart and saying, what is wrong with you? Where are you? Why is this going down like this? So when I approach God boldly, I don't do it out of some kind of strange rebelliousness or some kind of spiritual immaturity. I do it because I see Christ doing it. I approach God with all the aggression that I think God can handle because I've read what the Scriptures teach and I know what God's heart is and I want that in our world and I want it now. I have friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus and family members who don't know Jesus who will spend eternity apart from God in a place the Bible describes as burning, as smoking, as uh, like a burning garbage dump of loneliness for eternity. And that is completely unacceptable to me. And I look to God and I say, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you doing something? And a lot of us refuse to pray that way because we don't think that God can handle it. Because in our minds we have something that is too difficult for God. And God looks to you and says, is anything too difficult for me? anything. And I really feel that if you're shading your prayers and you're backing up on what you really want to talk to God about, it's not about your boldness, it's about your belief in what God can do. 
And that doesn't mean you get to pray for random candy and God's going to give it to you. God would answer that prayer with, don't be so stupid. But when we pray in the will of God, in the same way that Jesus prayed in the will of God, and we say, God, this is what I know your heart is, and this is what I know your belief, like this is what I know the promises of God are. And so let's move into those promises. Then God is not afraid of your prayers. Like God is not afraid of your honesty. Because if you have honest questions and demands and are you serious moments with God and then you shade that and try to put it back in the tent and you just want to say these things, what God says is, why did Sarah laugh to herself in the tent? And we, then we start lying to God and say, no, God, I'm, I'm a good person. I don't talk like that, Pastor James. You know, like, I respect you, God. And God isn't interested in your performance as much as he's interested in your heart and in your honesty. It's kind of a weird sermon because the application is to go home and actually be honest with God. Because God's already knowing what's going on in your heart. God hasn't shut down any churches in town yet because he's dealing with my competitive nature as a pastor and my hatred for putting chairs away. <laughs> but it isn't like it, God answering my prayer in the way that I want my prayer answered isn't a measure of God's faithfulness. God's willingness to not strike me with lightning even though I speak to him in this way is the answer of God's faithfulness. And it was close, like two miles from my house yesterday when it hit the golf course, two miles. And I'm like, all right, I know how hard I can push in my prayers. I got two more miles. <laughs> There's no reason for you to fear honesty with God. Because honesty with God, I think, is the real basis of a relationship with God. Because God already knows your heart. If you don't believe in God today... He knows your heart. If you struggle to believe in God, if you're like, I want to believe in God, but I barely have any belief in here. Jesus actually interacted with people like that and said, that is the kind of faith that I need. I don't believe, help me, or I want to believe, help me with my unbelief. If you're struggling in your life because things aren't turning out the way you want and you're afraid to tell God, God already knows and when you tell him, a lot of times the conversation that you're going to have with God is God's grace to you, not revelations to God. You can't surprise him. You can't shock him. You can't make him wonder what the right choice is. You can't stump him. You can't figure you're like Abraham and trick him with some logic. Oh, God, you're love, so you have to love me. He already knows because he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and he's all-present. God's relationship with you can be as honest as you can handle. Because God can handle all of it. And so I would pray, and I would pray for you, and offer you the blessing of honesty to God. 
in a way that turns into honesty to yourself. Because God already has an honest relationship with you and already knows that thing that you're refusing to talk to him about. He already knows that dream that you've decided to give up on because you're afraid of being disappointed. And God turns to you in a way and says, is anything too difficult for me? And God isn't talking about, in that moment, God isn't talking about something you're asking him to do. He's talking about, is your emotional and physical and spiritual response to me too much for me to handle? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is no. There's nothing in you and nothing from you that's too much for God to handle. So we're going to worship together. We're going to sing two songs, two songs that I love personally. Because that's our calling out to God to take us past what we're cool with. Because even though I'm honest with God in these things, I'm not, I, I still have this line where God I want to jokingly say, give us that building, God, but I'm terrified of this thing and that thing at the same time. I jokingly say, God, we need to grow our church to 20,000 because there's that many lost people in our town. Not because I need a spinning globe, but secretly, I want a spinning globe. (laughs) But there is this desire that I have, and I'm willing to be honest with God, but I'm not Jesus. I'm not totally honest with God because there's this line still and my prayer becomes for God to push me past where I'm cool with. If that means suffering in my life and if that means uh, just changes in my life, then what I actually pray is not that I can be jokingly honest with God, but that God will push me past where I'm okay. Because when I get past where I'm okay, then I know that me and God are being honest with each other And I'm learning things about myself through God's eyes that are very, very true about myself. So let's stand and worship. And we're going to worship with all of our dreams and all of our hope and all of our boldness. And the song's going to, has lines, these two songs have lines that call us beyond where you're cool with. And I would hope that these would be your prayers just set to music for you. Uh, Let's pray just real quickly in that direction as we begin to sing, Lord, We turn to you with everything that we have and everything that we are. And some of us are like terrified to be honest with you. Because we're kind of scared of being honest with ourselves. And I would pray that you would reach into our lives in such a way that you would just cause us to have that bold, an aggressive and fearless relationship with you that we see in Sarah in kind of a negative way and in Abraham in a way that seems to turn out a little better. Give us the bravery to stand in your way. And for all of us who have something in our life where we say to God, are you serious? We pray that you would allow us to speak those words. And to receive the grace of you hearing those words. And your activity in our life. And through our lives. Because nothing is too difficult for our God. In your grace and your faithfulness we pray. Amen.